4: your
0: Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM, and it is, oh my gosh, the 2nd of June. We are coming into the colonially imposed season of winter, um, but
1: how is everybody doing
0: today? I feel alive. As much as I can.
1: <laughs> I don't know why that was the first thing I came to my brain. I feel
0: alive. How about you, Malika? Um,
5: I feel warm. I feel like that's important. I'm very grateful for insulation and good heating in the studios.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I feel like um, it's an. It feels like a luxury in here to be able to wear just two layers. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, yeah. How about how about that uh, Melbourne insulation, folks? How are we feeling in our in our poorly insulated rentals? Uh, yeah,
1: I live in a double brick flat, uh, so it is uh, quiet, but you can feel the breeze through every little crack in every brick, and even though there's paint over it, I feel like I can still feel it. Wow, amazing.
0: Oh. Um, it sounds terrible, <laughs> um, unlike our show, which is going to be great. So how about we jump into our lineup um, do you want to take us away in
1: Absolutely. Uh, so we're listening to a pre-record with Janelle De Silva, who is a multidisciplinary artist, speaker, and birth worker. They joined us today to speak about their live podcast series, Race of the Table, um, with Dr. Nilmini Fernando and Fionn Bastos, also uh, Papa Filia. These free public events at 260 in Brunswick unpack issues marginalized artists face and discuss the vital role artists play in healing race and racism. The latest the last podcast recording sorry will be this Saturday 4th of June between 2 to 3 and you can grab your tickets through Eventbrite awesome and then <laughs> we are joined by Jimmy Grant from the band Big Farber. Bit of a lighthearted interview, but uh, Big Farmer is an upcoming nam based band that brings joyful lyrics, jangly guitar lines and big energy. And he joins us today to talk about making joyful music and having a sweet creative time with your pals. The next show will be supporting Kid and Heal at B East in Brunswick for free on Saturday the 11th of June from 6pm. It is one musical harvest you will not want to miss. Oh my god,
0: that's adorable. <laughs> um, after that, we 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 are joined by Professor Nancy Baxter, who's the head of the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health, and Professor Baxter is joining us to speak about the need for a comprehensive public health strategy to deal with the spread of COVID-19 and influenza in the face of rising infection rates as we enter the colder months. And after that, we're going to be joined by Anastasia Candere, who's a rank-and-file candidate running for the position of General Secretary of the National Tertiary Education Union, or NTEU. And Anastasia is speaking with us today about the need to transform the NTEU to save jobs and rebuild the sector. She's currently a worker in the sector as a casual academic, a rank-and-file worker, and is supported by a crew of campaigners in her push for a new NTEU.
5: And lastly, we're joined by Holly Jones, who's a researcher in the Healthy Housing Unit at the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health. Her research focuses on mould in housing, and she joins us to discuss their new research into mould in housing, as well as the need for climate action to ch- tackle this.
0: Wow, we have uh, we, we've got a very Melbourne School of Population and Global Health uh, heavy <laughs> show today. Just thinking that unintentional, but uh, I think it's going to be fantastic. Um, we might just jump into a little community service announcement and then get stuck into it. PX Fano is a Pacifica LGBTIQ
6: podcast providing a platform for Pacifica communities to unpack and discuss the narratives and the effects of the COVID 19 pandemic. Presented by Pacific X a collective that celebrates Pacific Island LGBTIQ communities through meaningful connections that honours cultural and gender identities. You can catch the podcast series every Sunday during Out of the Pan at around 12.30pm or on your favourite podcast platform. Supported by 3CR and funded by the Victorian Government Multicultural Communications Outreach Programme, For more information, go to 3cr.org.au
0: forward slash out of the pan. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And here are the news headlines for Thursday, the 2nd of June.
1: Uh, A historic draft legislation which would prevent medical interventions on intersex people without their consent, was released in the ACT this week. The proposed legislation sets out conditions for informed consent and mandates provision of advice and support for intersex people who do seek and opt in for medical procedures, as well as an advisory panel for children and people who do not have the capacity to consent. A spokesperson from the Intersex Human Rights Australia said the draft legislation has been a long time coming and hopes it can be used as a model at the national level.
0: In other news, Green Senator Lydia Thorpe says she is willing to risk losing her parliamentary position to continue protesting native logging following the Victorian state government's proposed changes to protest laws. The proposed changes mean those found guilty of disrupting native forest logging could face a year in prison or up to $21,000 in fines. Senator Thorpe, a Japurang Gunai Gunitamara woman who continues to protest against logging on her traditional land in eastern Victoria, says state governments do not have jurisdiction over traditional lands.
5: Also in headlines, a landmark court decision handed down this week will help workers recover unpaid wages from employers. The Federal Circuit and Family Court of Australia has ruled that individuals, not just employing businesses, can now be named in small claims cases to recover unpaid wages. And entitlements. The decision overturns a 10-year legal precedent that allowed company directors to avoid liability by de-registering the company or shifting assets, meaning that victims of wage theft were not often paid the amounts ordered to them by the courts. In local news, a report into management of contaminated soil at the Westgate Tunnel Project site has found that Victoria's Environmental Protection Authority failed to effectively engage with local communities who were worried about the impact that toxic soil dumping would have on local waterways, wildlife and residents. The findings released this week revealed the EPA told the State Ombudsman that engaging with the community on where to dump the toxic soil would be a waste of time because of the level of anger in the community. The EPA accepted recommendations from the report and will publish environmental management plans from the landfill operators managing the dump sites. And finally, in headlines, the decision on Julian Assange's extradition to the United States is due in the coming weeks in the UK, and Labor MPs are calling on Prime Minister Anthony Albanese to speak out against the move. Assange's lawyer is reiterating the plea for the Australian government to request. His returns home to Australia, and in doing so, protect the principles of freedom press, sorry, press freedom. During his time as opposition leader, Anthony is voiced support for Assange to be freed, saying his incarceration in the UK and pending extradition had gone on long enough. But, amidst the urgent pleas for action this week, the Prime Minister has so far remained publicly quiet on this issue. And a Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade spokesperson reiterated that Australia is not a party to this case. If extradited to the US, Assange faces a possible penalty of up to 175 years in jail for espionage charges. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 2nd of June. You're listening to 3CR.
0: Yeah, thanks so much, um, Malika, for wrapping us up there. I also want to remind people that it is Radiothon Month. Woo-hoo, That's right. Woo-hoo. That's right. It is the 1st of June, and it is Radiothon Month in, on 3CR, and we will play you a little CSA to tell you a bit about it.
7: Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon.
5: We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year.
2: Independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep community strong.
5: The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June.
7: To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 03 8377,
5: or drop in at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during business hours.
7: 3CR. Keep, Keep community, community
5: strong. strong.
0: cute very upbeat music there for for that little sting i very much enjoyed it just a reminder you know that you can uh, direct your pledge towards specific shows and i'm not saying it's a competition but i am saying that thursday breakfast uh deserves and wants your money so uh you can head to the special breakfast fundraiser which is three oh sorry no no it is not it is give now um, so i believe the link is GiveNow.com.au forward slash CR forward slash breakfast. That's CR, not 3CR, which is what I thought. Um, so GiveNow.com.au forward slash CR forward slash breakfast. And then uh, when you make your pledge and donate, don't forget to nominate the Thursday breakfast show. That's right. You can direct where it goes. Um, and, yeah, every cent really helps. Um, Every uh, donation over $2 is tax deductible, but really every little bit helps to keep community radio going and keep community strong. That's the theme of our fundraising this year. And I, you know, can't commend enough the excellent broadcasters on this station for all the work that they do to provide, you know, valuable news and current affairs to you know their communities we have a lot of community language shows as well but also to you know have these critical discussions that you're not going to find anywhere else on mainstream media so for all of your friends who throughout the election have been saying oh my gosh murdoch media consolidation and we're not getting accurate political coverage you know political reporting in this country gone down the toilet well they can donate to 3cr if uh if they're concerned about it enough to uh, rant about it on the Internet, perhaps they're concerned enough to throw a dollar at us.
5: <laughs> Lovely segue, Priya. And also, just a reminder, um, as of Wednesday this week, the Victorian government made flu jabs, vaccines free. So if you're considering um, getting, your, getting vaccinated for the flu, we know that it's quite rampant across the state, across the city at the moment. Um, book in for your flu jab as soon as possible. Protect your community.
0: Exactly. And uh, I will say, as a person who has never had a flu vaccine before, I got mine this year. And, and it's because I realized how important it was. Um, I think we... All learned a valuable lesson over the past few years about how irresponsible we used to be about our approaches to health and just being sick and going out and not really recognizing uh, the effects that this has on disabled and immunocompromised members of the community, but also on keeping the spread down. So go get your flu vaccination. That is uh, an initiative that lasts for the whole of June, I believe.
1: And now we will be going to. Sorry, is not my. <laughs> sorry, um, we're going to a pre-record with Janelle De Silva, who is a multidisciplinary artist who is speaking about their live podcast series, "Race on the Table," which has a live studio audience um, with Dr. Nilmany Fernando and Fiona Bastos, and they are talking about the issues and the ways uh, marginalized artists can uh, play a pivotal role in the arts, racism, and healing. Well, thanks so much for joining us here today on Thursday Breakfast, Janelle. Can we please maybe start off with what Race on the Table is and how it came to be?
3: Yeah, sure. So, yeah, firstly, I just want to say that I'm coming to you from the unceded lands of the Waterong people, of the Kulin Nation, and uh, I give you my respect to the elders, past and present. Uh, Race on the Table came from a... Residency, a long-term residency that Dr. Nilmini Fernando, Fionn Bastos and myself have been occupying the seats. Um, Nilmini and Fionn a bit longer than me, a year longer. So uh, their residency started in 2020 and mine in 2021. So this is the culmination of, you know, two years of a conversation that, um, we have been having as interdisciplinary women of color, artists of color, um, particularly from uh, Southeast Asian countries, and the way in which our particular experience informs our practice as well as um, the ways in which we are allies or not allies um, when we're working within the systems that have been created to um, support our work so yes we i mean Dr Neil Minnie is you know she's spent her life. Uh, unpacking this from an intellectual perspective and Fionn's on the ground working with the Wurundjeri, Wurundjeri people. Um, I come from it from the arts and I also come from it, come to, like, come towards my, decolon, my decolonizing, um, through my love of running as well. So we come from it towards the, um, the idea of putting race on the table from all these different perspectives. And Race on the Table is is the culmination of getting a grant through um, the Mullen City Council, through the Making Space Program. And we decided that we would create a platform where we could share these conversations that we're having and bring it out to the broader public, let alone internationally, but also um, our BIPOC community because we understand how Complex and intricate those places are that we traverse when we are um, descendants of of intergenerational trauma as well and have lived experience of racism and oppression. Um, however, we we still have the privilege of being in inverted commas Australian citizens and all of the privileges that come with that. Um, and then the way that assimilation has affected us intergenerationally as well in order to, um, to position ourselves as, spoke- as spokespeople or leaders in our community or, or in our fields. Uh, so it's very fraught and it's important that we can unpack this. We can dissect it. We can look at it for what it is. Um, we can name the things that make us feel uncomfortable, that position us in ways that are very delicate, you know, um, and that we must tread lightly and understand um, all of the ways in which we are privileged to, to have our voices as well. So that's what Race on the Table is. That's where it came from. And hopefully where it goes is, um, is with more funding.
1: And I feel like it was a really cathartic, beautiful space to be in because I went to the last live recording. Um, and I was crying <laughs> every five minutes and it felt like it was like really beautiful cathartic tears because there was something about the energy in the space and uh, feeling welcome to share your experiences and you know I just want to also thank you all for that but I guess also when you are all making the show were there any particular emotions or thoughts that you wanted to highlight in yourselves or evoke in the audience?
3: Yeah yes Um as I said this, this um developed organically so Really, what we did when we before we started our meeting, we would just debrief where we were at, and what we found was that we were really tired and frustrated um dealing with whiteness as a culture as a colonial system um and the way in which that that is um upheld and inferred in our cultural behavior but upheld through our systems of power um it was those, it was it was those emotions and reflections that initially, um, you know, it was that was the conception of the work was that it was so cathartic and so healing to hear each other, to recognise that we weren't alone, to understand that there was there was actually some very clear um, shared themes that were going on um and that we all of a sudden had all of these scenarios that we were like oh yeah this happened to me and that and it was all the same types of um gatekeeping that we were and, and lateral violence that we were experiencing and trying to unpack like it was so yeah i guess that the reason why you possibly felt that so um deeply is because we, this is, you know, after two years of us having these conversations, we're very clear about the way in which our dynamic operates, what the work is and what we want to share, which is a space of healing, of intergenerational healing. Breaking intergenerational silence is a, is a privilege and a choice that we have as possibly first generation Australians in inverted commas, um, of, of immigrant parents or people who have immigrated here. We have this other side of mainstream culture where we are encouraged to name things and speak about things. Um, as you would know, it, it provides a whole new perspective for people like us from the global majority. There is, you know, there is a deep inherent embodiment of having to silence yourself and cut off your emotions. So bringing our bodies into space is the first thing that we we choose to do with the work, is to really invite, like take the time and acknowledge that we are all bodies in space that we're choosing to come together. That's probably the, the most pivotal part of the work. Um, so, yes, it, it does move us that you felt that. Uh, And, and yes, we encourage it. We honour the tears. They're incredibly healing.
1: Yeah, it felt like it was, like, a really wonderfully Mm -hmm. healing space and um, almost like a unique vulnerability. I feel like a lot of vulnerability often is you invite people into your house only when it's clean (laughs) and when you've done the dishes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But when it's, like, true vulnerability is inviting people in, When it is a bit messy and maybe you're not super proud of the place, but you still want people to be there, and I feel like the space is held really beautifully and it is cathartic. But one of my favorite parts of the podcast is the unbelievable acts of whiteness segment. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love the sound that comes on before it happens. Unbelievable acts of whiteness. (laughs) Whiteness. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think. That is – I'm floored by whoever came up with that name. That's fantastic. But I guess also why did you want to include this in the show? And, you know, you spoke about healing before. What role do you think humour plays in healing?
3: Oh, gosh. It's just – it's that thing, you know, if you're not laughing, you're crying. I just want to sort of give a shout-out to the black and black cultures out there because I think that, you know, these First Nations people and our – and and black people in America, geez, they're such, they're so good at satire and la- and laughing at, like, being able to find humour, because black joy is necess- is a necessity. As I developed as a performer, I realised that comedy was my niche, because I was able to use satire to be able to have social commentary, but actually make it Interesting by being funny and coming together with Nilmini and Fionn. Yeah, we, we were on the floor rolling around when we would, um, when we would share unbelievable acts of whiteness with each other. And then we, and then it just, because we were saying unbelievable so much, then, um, (laughs) I do remember when that phrase unbelievable acts of whiteness came up. And, yes, we laughed so hard, and I wrote it down in my notes on my phone that we have to make a segment. Whatever we create, we have to have a segment called Unbelievable Acts of Whiteness because that is just gold. Um, And I think it's something that people of colour and black and First Nations people can relate to but not necessarily have a space where it's okay to laugh about it. Um, Because it's not funny. Microaggressions are not funny, Um, and sometimes they're beyond micro. You know, they're they're yeah, they're they're intensely violent. Um, So that is not funny. But what is funny is the um, the the level of ignorance and the lack of the level of privilege, the the level of entitlement that can operate on just basic day to day happenings where people can't even be present with each other because whiteness is so blinding. And so we wanted a platform where we could speak to it, but we could also just take the peace out of it, you know, and just kind of go, that's just so ridiculous. Like, it's ridiculous. It's important. And and what I have loved is with these past two um, episodes, these live episodes, we've had people, you know, Anglo-Celtic backgrounds. Stand up and share their experience as well, so they can speak to whiteness as well, which is to have people who experience white privilege and they can name it because for me, that means that they'll be able to speak to it when it's when it happens
1: yeah, I think they'll be able to invite uh people who maybe actually are part of the experience to <laughs> speak on why they are a part of it uh is important, but the funniest moments were definitely <laughs> when maybe non-white people <laughs> were also sharing their experiences. But some of them were horrific, but really it is goes back to the thing of you have to laugh or else you'll cry. <laughs> yeah,
3: and it's okay to do both at the same time. Absolutely. Um I have to you, do.
1: <laughs> yeah, when, when you're in a,
3: a brave space, so sometimes uh, because I come from a therapeutic background, a uh, therapeutic arts background, I'm aware that... I don't know what safety means for you and I don't know what it means for every person in the audience, but I understand what, um, how to, what vulnerability can bring to the space. And I understand the importance of a, of a brave space and wanting to be courageous. So, um, within that framework, we choose to, yeah, wear our hearts on our sleeves and we, yeah, we want to encourage our community first. Yes. To be able to. Um, share these experiences as a collective and, um, and name, name the things we see and experience every day.
1: How can people, one, show up to a race on the table and how do we take action to allow these events and spaces to grow? Um, and you know, also support emerging, um, artists.
3: Yeah. Thank you for asking that question. Um, so our funding um, was for three episodes so our last episode is this Saturday and um, that's at two o'clock. It's open to the public and we're taking bookings via Eventbrite. I'm just confirming today that we're going to be at Next Wave Festival so that's at 270 Sydney Road, um, just across the road because it's a indoor space um, and it's in a theatre so it'll be nice and warm. Yeah, even though our Residency is to fill 260, the actual outdoor space, uh, with events. Yeah, it's 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 80% forecast rain, and look at the weather outside. So yeah, <laughs> we're going to go to Next Wave Festival, um, and and if not, we're going to site work. So I'll be putting that on the socials to confirm that. So that's if you want to come and join us live, which we would love to have everyone and anyone who will brave the weather. We're essentially going to edit those episodes, pop them up on our YouTube channel, Race on the Table. Um, it'd be ideal. It'd be fantastic if you can like it and subscribe and so that we can show we're building an audience. And from there, we're going to take it to some investors, uh, some funding bodies, hopefully fund a series, like, you know, a 12 episode series at least. Uh, with, you know, you, there's so many incredible people we could talk to. Um, Obviously we we want to platform First Nations people first and then, you know, there's so many extraordinary people in our community, in the broader BIPOC community as well, the QT BIPOC community, uh, that we would love to share space with as well. So I come from I started off twenty five plus years ago on the A B C hosting a live television show. Um so I was producing and writing and co hosting that. Um so I have these this is being like a skill that I've been putting into my work for the past, for my career. But to do it about our experience for our community feels like um, like I've landed home. You know, like my vocation has finally aligned with who I am. But
1: well, you're all multidisciplinary and coming together, you all have the same goal. And I think the energy in the space is really beautiful and it is quite healing in a sense. So I uh, just want to thank you again for your time, for coming on today. for also put uh the link to the event and everything in the show notes for anybody who wants to come. So thank you so much, Janelle.
3: Thank you so much, Inez, and everyone listening today.
1: You had an interview with Janelle De Silva, and they spoke about their live podcast series Race on the Table with Dr. Nirmany Fernando and Fionn Bastos. It is a free public event. The last recording will be on Saturday the 4th of June in Brunswick between 2 to 3 and you can grab your tickets through Eventbrite and we'll link all the information down below.
7: Tune in to Stick Together, all about workers' rights and social justice.
4: 8.30am Wednesday, 7am Saturday.
6: Or listen on demand on 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yenai
4: is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Alta and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be
6: talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters.
1: And now we are joined by Jimmy Grant, who is one fifth of the band Big Pharma. And Big Pharma is an up and coming Nam-based band that brings platters of joyful lyrics and jangly guitar lines, stonking bass and big energy. And he joins us today to talk about making joyful music and having a sweet creative time with your pals. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Jimmy.
7: Thank you for having me on.
1: (laughs) No worries. Absolutely, any time. Can we start with the name? Because Big Pharma might just be one of the best band names I have ever heard of. Uh, Could you touch on maybe how the name came about and who else is in the band?
7: So, um, the name is disputed as to how it came about. None of us can really remember. Um, (laughs) I think we were out with Cal, it was just after... One of the big lockdowns in 2020 ended, and we were out at Carlton Gardens trying to come up with band names. Um, And someone said Big Pharma. Nobody really remember who says Big Pharma. And that was how the idea came about. And we spelled it with an F. It's obviously a play on words for Big Um, Pharmaceuticals. We used to, before we came up with that, we had a Google Doc with about 100 different band names on it. Uh, and none of them really stuck, so that just that just sort of came about in the moment, and everybody seemed to be happy with it, yeah, and um, so everybody else in the band, so it's Cal, who's my housemate who plays bass and guitar and some of the songs, and then we've got Declan, who's also my housemate who plays drums and everything. then we've got and they're both brothers as well, Cal and Declan, and then we've got two other brothers, Sean who plays keyboard and Stefan, who plays guitar and saxophone and myself, obviously on guitar and bass in a couple songs.
1: Yeah. Jimmy, I'm just wondering where is, um, where is your brother? You seem to be a bit left out <laughs> in this scenario.
7: <laughs> I just say that they're, they're all my, they're all my brothers.
1: Oh, that's very, that's very sweet. Um, yeah. I mean, going on to the next question, that sounds like, you know, working with two brothers and I know you guys have known each other for a really long time. Um, could you speak maybe about how? What are some of the joys of working with some of your best pals?
7: Um, I think one of the the best joys is coming, just coming up with a song or a part of a song that we all just think sounds really good. And just I think that moment of um, creation, of realizing like oh this sounds really good, and just playing it with your friends, it's a really great feeling um, when you just come up with something in the moment. Um, obviously as well like getting you know we mainly play to our friends and family um which we love like it's it's just a sort of social thing for us most of the time we play we get to see so many of our friends and our family and just all hang out at every show um and we all just really appreciate that one of the best aspects of it
1: yeah i guess you know speaking of Going to your shows live, I feel like every time you do have a really wonderful sense of community around, um, and it is like a beautiful excuse to always come together and support all of you, and you're always having a great time on stage. Um, Also, your songs. Some are filled with really fun lyrics. Um, There's one about coffee (laughs) and there's one about astrology apps and there's also one about fruit and veggies and i know the last show you did you opened up with (laughs) like a wiggles rendition um it's one of the reasons why your shows are so fun and great to dance around in how does everybody come up with these amazing song names and songs
7: um that's a good question i think it's a it's a different process for each song so on some of the songs a lot of them were written during um lockdowns, and so a lot of them we sort of, one of us would write completely by ourselves and then bring it to the band to, to, to everyone to learn that part, so uh, yeah, a lot of the songs um, were sort of just written by one member and then brought to the band but then some of the songs, like the uh, the Wiggles, I wouldn't say a cover, because it's not a cover, it's our original but it takes influence from Toot Toot, Chugga Chugga, Big Red Car which was a song we opened with last week. Um, We wrote that sort of all together. Uh, Cal and Declan, I think, came up with the guitar line, and then we sort of all just started playing it and making up the lyrics on the spot. Um, And so that was a song that I guess we just sort of all wrote together right then and there. So it, it changes for every song
1: yeah that sounds really sweet. I mean, sorry I didn't we to misinterpret the wiggle the wiggles interpretation um but yeah, so are you so typically like everybody's been doing it on their own and then uh coming together, so you guys don't write songs together as much, would you say?
7: yeah, I think um I think a lot of yeah, that's probably true because a lot of the songs were written during lockdown, and so just by necessity, we had to write them by ourselves. I think we're sort of more starting to write songs collectively now. I think as well now that we sort of, we've been playing together for a while, we have a better grasp of um, how to play along with each other. We have a better chemistry with each other. I think it, like sort of when we started playing together, we probably struggled a little bit with being able to improvise when someone would come on come in with an idea whereas now I think someone can play an idea and everyone can sort of start playing along instantly. I think we've we've improved in that regard a lot.
1: Yeah, I think you know, the chemistry on stage is definitely palpable and it just makes the whole show really fun and just knowing that you all... Get along and that, uh, you've all put a lot of work and energy into this. And I also know since you guys have started, you have been booking gigs like nobody's business. Do you have? <laughs> and you got a residency at the old bar as well. Like, can you, uh, maybe explore how, how to book gigs when you're like up and coming? Cause I know sometimes that can be quite a hurdle for emerging artists.
7: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess that was like something that we don't know. Probably we don't really know yet either. We, we haven't been gigging that long. We only started in November last year.
4: Mm-hmm.
7: Um, I guess a lot of the gigs we started playing were just our own headline shows because it seemed like the easiest way to get a show was to just email a venue and ask to play your own show. So um, the first show we played at the Workers' Club in November and then we played um, a show in... December at the Old Bar with the Pinstripes. Um, and then after that, the Old Bar asked us back to do a residency in February. So we played sort of four, four shows once a week for the month of Feb, where we headlined each night. And then I think it, so at that stage we played, you know, six or seven shows and we hadn't actually supported anyone yet. So And then, then we sort of started getting asked to support bands, which... Um, We've really enjoyed. Like it's less, it's less stress than playing the headline show. Um, you don't have to do a lot of a lot of organising, and you get to play to sort of a different crowd, um, people that don't know you. So, we've yeah, like quite a few bands recently have been asking us to support them, which is heaps of fun. Um, really enjoying that that part of it.
1: Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, even just being able to email and building those connections, even though you've been doing it since, like, the band's been doing it since November, uh, you guys have definitely made a name for yourself, and I think that's really special. Uh, Also, with just for the last question, um, where is your next up-and-coming show, and are there any, like, um, emotions that you want to bring out in the audience in this one? Uh,
7: Well, um, there's always emotions we want to bring out, our uh, next, next shows at the, the B East on Saturday, the 11th of June. So, that's um, it's a burger place in Brunswick East. And we're supporting Kitten Hill, which are a band from Sydney. They, they play really awesome music. It's sort of like this dancey um, I, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like they, they describe it as a, a mix between rave and rock. And it's sort of got this like, deep bass groove, but lots of guitar. It's really, really good music. And we're also playing with um, Gemini Country, which the the guy from that does stand at the retreat, and he's a really great guy. Um, And I guess emotions we want to bring out in the fans. Well, it's always always happiness is the main one. We always, I think like we play, play, one, for us to have fun, and two, for everybody else to have fun. Um, So we always, you know, when we get up on stage, we just want to look out and see people smiling and dancing around, having a good time. Um, I think that's always our main goal is to just try and have, have fun. That's what I think that's, that's what it should all be about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, thank you for coming on the show and having fun with Thursday, <laughs> Thursday breakfast. Um, but, yeah, I really appreciate your, your time, Jimmy. And yeah. please look up Big Pharma and we'll be going to a song soon. Well, thanks, Jimmy.
7: Thanks so much for having me on, Inez.
1: Um, and you just heard an interview with Jimmy Grant from Big Pharma, who are an up and coming Nam-based band, and they spoke about joyful music and having a creative time with your pals. And now we'll be going to one of their tracks, Franco Bernay. <laughs>
0: was Franco Bernay by Melbourne-based band Big Farmer. And you just heard an interview that Inez did with Jimmy Grant from Big Farmer. Uh, they do have a show coming up supporting Kitten Heel at B-East in Brunswick for free on Saturday the 11th of June, and uh, they'll be playing from 6 p.m. And uh, we will have all that information for you in the show notes about how to attend and also, you know, Bandcamp info to support them and... and uh, download their tracks, pay for their music. That's right. Music is back. And uh, we need to start actually buying that stuff instead of subscribing to uh, large streaming platforms that don't give people a decent cut. Anyway, you're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. And we are now going to be joined by Professor Nancy Baxter, who's the head of the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health. And she's speaking with us today about the need for a comprehensive public health strategy to deal with the spread of COVID-19 and influenza in in the face of rising infection rates as we enter the colder months. Nancy, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, so we're now entering uh, winter and it looks like we've got a lot of work to do to tackle rising cases of both COVID-19 and influenza. Now, you co-authored a conversation article with Professor Nicholas Talley from the University of Newcastle last week about the urgent need to take COVID seriously. Could you tell us a bit about the lay of the land in terms of COVID and influenza rates and the severity of cases in Australia leading up to this month?
2: Well, in, in a typical year, um Flu can really challenge the healthcare system because uh you know it's it's a disease that that we know well, but does come in waves, um, and uh, you know there's usually not a lot of um, slack in the healthcare system. So when you have you know a, a, a wave of people needing to to go to the emergency, needing to be hospitalized, it can really put a strain. Um, We haven't had the flu in a few years, Um, you know, because of all the restrictions and protections we've had uh, for COVID. Uh, But now this year, what we're seeing is we're having, you know, two outbreaks of diseases that constrain the healthcare system: COVID and the flu. So you combine the two and, you know, our, our hospitals, our GPs are really at risk of um, being overwhelmed this winter, um, not to mention all the people that um, will be be getting sick and uh, will be, you know, uh, hospitalized or will have long COVID or even die um, of either disease. Well, they won't have long, uh, long, get long COVID from the flu, but, um, but get seriously ill from either the flu or COVID. All at the same time. So um, there, there are risks going into winter. We're seeing them happen actually now. And now is the time. Actually, the time to do something would have been long ago. But now is the time we really need to do something to avert uh, what, what may be a, a real problem come this winter.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And of course, around COVID, there's been a lot of public discussion over the past few years in terms of reaching a point where we're living with COVID or reaching a level of COVID normal. But I think it's quite important to differentiate between framing COVID as an epidemic versus as an endemic disease when we have these conversations. And I'm hoping that you could speak to this difference between epidemic and endemic and some of the concerns about uh, complacency in public health management when we frame a quite an unpredictable disease, as endemic.
2: Well, what I would say is that, um, you know, I find that worrying about the nomenclature somewhat, um, it's too soon to, to even worry about this nomenclature. And we have plenty of endemic diseases that are serious, life-threatening, you know, um, malaria is an endemic disease. It kills millions of people every year. Um, So I I do think worrying about whether it's endemic or epidemic doesn't really matter. You know, endemic means you have a fairly, you you know, we're not getting rid of it. You have a fairly um, uh, consistent rate of cases over time. So a little bit of a predictable disease. Epidemic means it comes in waves. So the flu, although we've we've had it um, forever, uh, for For thousands of years, and it does come in ways sometimes is an endemic disease as well um, so i don 't think the the what we call it really matters. I think what we should be thinking about is whether this continues to be a public health threat whether this um, uh, whether covid continues to be um, something we should be concerned about on a daily basis and whether we should do something about COVID. It doesn't really matter whether it's endemic or epidemic in terms of the fact that it's becoming you know, one of the major killers of Australians right now, and it is going to be a major cause of disability in Australians over time with long COVID. So I think whether that's epidemic or whether that's endemic doesn't really matter. I think the issue about epidemic is that because COVID comes in ways similar to the flu, that it can overwhelm healthcare systems, even if even if we um, you know have periods of time where things are better, where you know a, a wave passes, it still has the threat to overwhelm healthcare systems. So I think that's why we always need to be concerned about diseases that have that um, have that element to them, uh, because you know um, if we don't do something to control the outbreaks of these diseases then that the numbers can get very high and uh, the healthcare system can um, not be able to, to cope with, with the uh, uh, outbreaks, but also because they're not able to cope with the outbreaks, it can make it challenging to cope with, uh, with the, the normal care that's, that's delivered by, by hospitals and GPs. Um, so uh, to me, the, what you name it doesn't matter so much as this is continuing to be a public health risk and something we should be doing more about.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I appreciate you um, clarifying that because uh, and and also linking it into the nature of the public health response required, because it's been pretty clear that there have been some uh, concerns about public health management at both the federal and state government levels. Um, And I mean, over the past week, we have seen most states announce the free flu shot availability across June to try and tackle this rapid spread of influenza alongside COVID. But I was wondering if you could speak to the levels of flu shot uptake across the country so far as well as to the COVID booster uptake and the importance of these measures?
2: Yeah, well, this is a great thing because this is one of the key things that we can do something about. This is something active that we can do to help control both of these diseases is to, to get vaccinated. Currently, in terms of the flu, only about 27% of Australians have been vaccinated. I think programs uh, introducing free flu vaccination were late. They should have been started much earlier to make sure people were protected. We know that this year um, we we definitely are seeing the flu. So it's not going to be like 2020 and 2021 where we had very little flu. We're seeing the flu. We're seeing it's, It's looking like it's going to at least be an average flu year. It may well be a worse-than-average flu year, but at least it's going to be an average flu year. But an average flu year at the same time as we're having an outbreak of COVID. So really important that we do what we can to to protect uh, people uh, against both diseases. Currently, about 27% of people have had the flu vaccine. We need to get that much higher. The flu is a threat to people of all ages. Unlike COVID, it seems to be that COVID is milder in young people. The flu can be more severe in children. So, uh, than in, than in adults. So it's really important that people in all age groups get vaccinated for the flu. In terms of COVID, we still have, um, you know, a significant percentage of the population that's eligible for boosters not boosted. So the booster rate is, um, Less than 70% in Victoria, so um, we know that that third dose is really important in terms of um, helping protect people from um, severe disease, hospitalization, and death. Um, so that third disease that third dose makes a difference. So getting that third dose uh, rate up as high as the primary vaccination rate really important. And in the future, we'll likely think of COVID. Uh, vaccines is a three-dose regimen, not a two-dose regimen. So the third dose is really important. We know for people at risk, a winter dose, so an additional dose, um, will benefit in terms of preventing hospitalization and death. So for people that are at risk, so uh, people that are older, over 65, people in aged care, disability care, um, people who have um, immune-compromised uh, younger people who are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, um, these people will have benefit from a winter dose. Um, so, so we need to get more people, more jabs in arms. Uh, you mm. know, bottom line, we need to get more jabs in arms, both flu and uh, and COVID. Um, good news is, if you haven't had your booster or haven't had your winter dose, you can have it at the same time as your flu vaccination. Mm. So, so that that's the good news. There's there's no issue with having both at the same time.
0: Excellent. Well. I think, yeah, in terms of actually... Um getting people in the door to get jabs in arms. Uh, it's also important to talk about the Victorian health system, which has been buckling under the strain of both COVID cases and also um, issues around the government's provision of alternative and supported accommodation for hundreds of disabled and elderly community members who are in, sort of in limbo in hospital at the moment as well. And this has had pretty serious flow-on effects for effective ethical and humane provision of medical care to all patients um, you know, coming in with any sort of illness. And the ambulance service in the state is also unable to meet the level of public demand. So I'm wondering what actions should be taken at the state level to improve public health service provision, including, um, you know, improving access to getting the flu vaccine as well.
2: Well, I, I, I do think that if we've decided that we're not going to do anything from a public health perspective, that we're not going to, you know, collectively do anything or encourage people really to do anything about COVID, um that we are going to have a high rate of covid for for considerable amounts of time um and we need to kind of prepare our healthcare systems for that uh, otherwise we're going to be continually overwhelmed uh, by um by the new covid cases so this is a new disease but it's now uh, um you know the the f- currently the fourth most common killer of australians so so it's a new disease that's adding on to all the other diseases that we have so, so we need more capacity in our healthcare systems to deal with this. This isn't something that you can just snap your fingers and do, but it's certainly something we need to think about for the future, is that our capacity is going to need to increase. Um, what to do uh, currently? Well, you know, I, when, when you look at the public health systems that have been developed for COVID, they're currently actively being dismantled by governments, uh, both uh, both state governments, as well as the Commonwealth government. And I think that that's premature because the the public health disaster is not over. So I think we need to make sure that the the systems that we've developed for hospital in the home, um, for the public health um, control of COVID, they need to be maintained um, because uh, if we start to kind of Decrease our funding of things like hospital and home. It's just going to strain our current hospital system. Um, uh, you know, you know. I, I think that as the flu season goes on, um, there may maybe need to to um, try to manage the uh, acute care system by things like uh, affecting surgery. Uh, it's really the only thing we have in the in the acute care system that 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 can be changed in terms of decreased, um, uh, you know, very few people other than those coming in for elective surgery in hospitals are there because they don't need, they don't have to be from an urgent or emergent perspective.
6: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I'm a surgeon. It's not something that I kind of take lightly in terms of reducing elective surgery, but um, but that is the only lever that hospitals have in terms of, of reducing, um, reducing the influx to the system. Uh, and that may be something that they have to um, decreased over the winter season just because we were having both this outbreak of the flu and outbreak of COVID. Um, and that's what's going to happen to us if we don't do something to control either.
0: Yeah, definitely. And it, it does speak to this need for, I guess, investment in capacity building in, in our uh, public health system uh, so that there there's less of a I guess less of less pressure to have these kinds of of trade offs that are quite you know difficult difficult decisions to make. Um yeah. So, yeah finally considering that the new federal cabinet appointments have been announced this week for the Albanese government did you want to comment on some of the strategies that the new federal government should be prioritizing in terms of public health related to covid and the flu from a national level?
2: Well first I think they need to make it clear that that third dose is necessary and so it- The third dose should be required to be considered fully vaccinated, Uh, and there should be a push to get all of Australians vaccinated with their booster dose, because that will reduce hospitalizations, death, and long COVID. So I think that's really important, number one. Um, uh, And I I do think that there's been um, a lack of willingness to talk about COVID because of the election. It was not something that either party wanted to talk about, because it uh, kind of is a problem with no easy solution. So these aren't things that politicians generally want to talk about during elections. Uh, And they weren't kind of forced to by the press either. So we haven't talked about COVID, so we don't really know anyone's position on COVID. Um, uh, But people now, now that we have the election is over, people now need to, to, to govern and to lead. Uh, and to make a difference in terms of this COVID outbreak. And what do I mean by that? So we basically um, are giving, our, our leaders are giving the impression that no one needs to do anything about COVID now, that that, that COVID is over, that the, the public health emergency is over, and that we can just go back to our normal lives. Um, so COVID normal means not doing anything about COVID. Uh, we're seeing the uh, the impact of that. So, um, you know, COVID now is the fourth most common killer of Australians. It's a new disease that now is the fourth most common killer of Australians. We're seeing persistently high cases. Uh, we're seeing, you know, persistently high hospitalizations, and we're not even really talking about long COVID. Mm. So this this is a pub, remains a public health emergency that we're not doing anything about from a public health perspective. Um, so, in addition to to vaccinations, vaccinations are not going to be enough. To, to, to deal with this, um, you know, we can just live like we're living, but then we're going to have this constant crisis, um, that we're going to need to increase our hospital capacity for and and open, you know, many long COVID clinics, et cetera. Um, so what could we do? I think we could send people the message that it's not over, right? That's one thing is we could message that it's not over and talk to people in a way that's clear about what, what we should be doing to try to reduce the risk of, of COVID. In our communities, Um, and you know, you look around, no one's wearing masks. And I understand that masks are somewhat uncomfortable, and um, that you know, I can understand why people don't want to wear them if they don't have to. Um, But but the fact is, they they reduce transmission of COVID, uh, and they can prevent COVID cases, they can prevent COVID hospitalizations, deaths, and long COVID. So you know, if we wore them more in indoor spaces, it would reduce. You know the current outbreak, um, and so it should be encouraged, uh, mm-hmm. and it should be. You know, we should have a conversation about it. So it may be that um, when low cases of COVID are low, that we cannot wear masks indoors, um, but when cases of COVID start to go up, that we need to wear masks mm-hmm. indoors. We should have conversations like that, telling people what they can do to try to reduce COVID instead of having no conversations, no leadership that just leads to this, you know, both lack of boosters in terms of vaccination, but also lack of sensible public health measures to actually deal with this. The other thing is improving our ventilation. Mm -hmm. So we know that if you don't have good ventilation, um, you are, you, and someone in, in the space has COVID, you're breathing in the COVID that someone else has exhaled. And it, 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 it's what causes COVID to transmit. So if we improve the quality of our indoor air, then we're going to reduce the transmission of COVID. So we need to actually take that seriously. We need public health communication about that. And we need, um, alternatives and support for people to actually be able to, um, to achieve that. Um, we have effective antivirals. It's really somewhat challenging to get them into people because they have, need to be given to people very quickly from onset of COVID to prevent COVID from becoming more serious. We need to really support GPs in terms of this, this new care that they have to deliver to getting to getting this happening, to getting mm. Paxlovid into people who need it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I really appreciate you outlining this, you know, quite comprehensive list of strategies that we can put into place at the individual level, but also, um, you know, requiring the support and, uh, you know, the federal government and the state governments being very vocal about the, uh, the fact that this is not over. So, Professor Nancy Baxter, thank you so much for taking the time to share your expertise on this and, you know, really raise more awareness about the fact that this isn't over and we really need to be taking it seriously. Well, thank you for for speaking to me today. Of course. And that was Professor Nancy Baxter, head of the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health, who joined us to speak about the need for a comprehensive public health strategy to deal with the spread of COVID-19 and influenza in the face of rising infection rates as we are entering the colder months. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And it is coming up to 8.03 in the morning.
7: Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon.
5: We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year.
2: Independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep
5: community strong. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June.
7: To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 039419-8377.
5: or drop in at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during business hours.
7: 3CR. Keep Keep community community strong.
5: strong.
0: morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM and we are joined now by Anastasia Kangere, who is a rank and file candidate running for the position of general secretary of the national tertiary education union or NTEU speaking with us today about the need to transform the NTEU to save jobs and rebuild the sector. Anastasia thanks so much for joining us today.
6: Good morning prayer it's a beautiful morning to be on 3CR.
0: It's always a beautiful morning to be on 3CR, and we're so glad to have you with us to talk about this uh, campaign and some of the things that you're seeking to change. So we did cover some of the lay of the land in the Australian tertiary education sector last week regarding job insecurity for workers and the ways that universities have sort of closed ranks and focused on profit margins over the last few years. But I was hoping that you could tell us a bit more about this in terms of the role and actions of the NTEU over this time, such as in relation to initiatives such as the Job Protection Framework.
6: Absolutely. Absolutely. So the Jobs Protection Framework was an agreement that was put together between senior union management and senior university management to – well, theoretically, to save jobs. And this happened very early on as the pandemic hit Australia. So one of the issues there was that it happened incredibly early as things were happening, and it also happened behind closed doors – So this really angered the membership because they felt like they had not been consulted in this process. I mean, they hadn't been. Um, And they then were not given really an opportunity to deliberate on this agreement and whether it was actually going to be beneficial to workers. I think that the jobs protection framework is best understood as a symptom rather than a cause. It's a symptom of a union that is is very weak. The fear that drove senior union management into that closed-door meeting with bosses is a real fear. Um, And the concern that we did not have the density, we did not have the participation, we did not have the collective power to actually fight against the cuts that bosses were planning to push through as a result of the pandemic was real. I guess what my issue is, is that, the way of dealing with that fear was to delve deeper, basically, into this um, concessionary, bureaucratic, Mm. top-down style of unionism rather than using that as the moment to realise, wow, this is really bad and we need to make a change.
0: Mm. Yeah, and I guess in terms of the the sort of changes that you're seeing that are required and and the scale of the crisis of tertiary education in Australia, can you also speak to the importance of the union being able to take strike action when needed? So for example last week we spoke with uh, an NTU member at the University of Sydney about the strike action there but this is quite rare in the sector in Australia. So what differences do you see between advocacy and organising as a union?
6: Yeah okay this is a question that we love at a new NTU because we love talking about organising so an advocacy model of unionism basically requires, basically doesn't require anything of members. Occasionally members will be the face of some kind of public campaign and that member will be generally handpicked again by senior executives of the union. An organising model of unionism sees the workers as the absolute centre of everything that the union does. Directing strategy, creating campaigns and we have this phrase, um, amongst organizing enthusiasts, every worker a member, every member an organizer. So it's a vision of extremely high density and then also of extremely high participation and trust in those members. So if we talk about the, the UCID strike, it is true, yes, that, um, the NTU is, is often reluctant to strike. And again, I would say that this is, Th- there is some good reason for this. Um, density is not strong, and running strike, have really strong union density, and we don't have really strong participation and trust amongst those workers who are members of the union. It, it, it's risky. it can be a sign of weakness. So I, so I definitely do understand uh, the caution that can surround that decision. Again, what the issue is is what are we doing? NCU to change this situation of low density, low participation, low trust and that's again what I'm not setting the leadership for which is why I'm running for General Secretary. Mm.
0: Yeah, actually, this really links well into another question that I had for you about the importance of building solidarity between academic, permanent and casual workers and between academic and non-academic tertiary education workers, because these Mm -hmm. are all represented by the NTEU. And it looks like it'll be a key part of this change that you're hoping to bring. Uh, What's your assessment of current avenues for democratic participation and solidarity between different types of workers in the sector in the NTEU, including as we've been approaching the 2022 NTEU elections?
6: Yeah, so probably on this show, I know that some comrades of mine have been on the show before um, and so probably the issues around precarious workers have been talked about a fair bit on this show. What I might start with is talking about professional staff or otherwise known as non-academic staff or general staff in universities There can be, and look, I will, you know, I I will accept this, that sometimes academic workers can uh, see ourselves as the centre of the university and not um, do enough to understand and appreciate the absolutely crucial work the professional workers do. Um, And that also has sometimes been reflected in the NTEU, where sometimes, um, particularly kind of the rhetorics of the the union can Really focus on us as kind of intellectual leaders, and and these kinds of language about NTU workers and members that doesn't that that assumes that those are academic workers, which of course it, of course is false. Um, it, it it does vary quite a lot between universities the proportions, but certainly at least forty, um, and then up to sixty percent of workers in the sector will be uh, professional staff. So. Obviously, uh, effective unionism means extremely high density, which means creating really strong links between these people. And also, I think when you start thinking strategically as a unionist about doing things like strike action and other creative forms of industrial action... Professional staff are the ones who keep the lights on. So they're actually incredibly strategic locations um, to, to start thinking about industrial action in. Like, can you imagine if you got uh, all of the IT staff or all of the library staff on strike or taking some kind of protected mm-hmm. industrial action? That is going to have massive, immediate impacts, which quite frankly, mm-hmm. academic workers um, simply can't have. So again, the vision needs to be of every worker in the sector working together, understanding the contribution that every other worker makes and in a complete relationship of trust which creates that collective power so we can win.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I really like the the emphasis on... I don't know. I don't know if it's appropriate for me to use this terminology, but on like sort of being quite militant against the idea of intellectual vanguardism in the, um, in, in the organizing, because really like the, the, especially thinking about the role of library workers, for example, um, and seeing library workers go on strike earlier this year, um, I believe in Geelong, you know, it's, it's quite a crucial role that library workers play, um, in, in the whole, you know, academic ecosystem. Um, so just to wrap up, what strategies do you propose to build confidence and trust in the NTU to seriously consider the needs and livelihoods of all workers of all identities and to be accountable to members and also non-members in the sector? What would a new NTU look like?
6: Okay, amazing question and I love that you mentioned non-members there because it's really crucial to us that we see every worker in the sector who isn't yet a member, they're just a comrade that we haven't convinced yet. Um, And this kind of um, really dismissive attitude that sometimes can permeate amongst the NTEU, we're just not a serious enough organising union to to have that kind of contempt for people who in the vast majority of cases simply haven't been asked. So... Yes, we need to be accountable for those people. We need to at every, at every stage, every decision that we make, we need to be thinking, would this reflect well on us if non-members knew about these decisions? Would they be excited to join this union? And that's something that at an UNTU we have always pushed for democratic, transparent, accountable processes that will allow the union to to be an organisation that we can be proud of and that we can proudly go out and represent to non-members and say, this is a fantastic organisation, this is an organisation that takes social justice seriously, that is profoundly democratic, that always deals in a really accountable and transparent and open way with any issues that occur that genuinely cares about every single worker in the sector and you should join. And that really changes the kinds of organizing conversations that you can have when you can represent with so much pride and confidence in your organization.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Look, Anastasia, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about the plan for a new NTU, about the changes that are needed in the sector and wishing you all the best with the campaign. We will put links uh, for people to read more and find out more in the show notes. But thank you so much.
6: Thank you so much, Priya, and all of your comrades
0: there. Excellent. And that was Anastasia Kangere, who's a rank-and-file candidate running for the position of General Secretary of the National Treasury Education Union, or NTEU, and she spoke with us today about the need to transform the NTEU to save jobs and rebuild the sector. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings, cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Come on community radio stations around Australia. Produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne.
2: Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost and workers' entitlements will be undermined.
3: Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else.
7: Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs.
6: Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women.
7: Muckety is a bad deal, but muckety is absolutely not a done deal.
0: You're listening to Women on the Line.
7: Welcome again to Lost in Science.
0: And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network.
7: Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play.
1: Tune in to Stick Together, worker stories and union
0: news. Grassroots Voice is broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. And you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we're going to go to Malika for our next interview.
5: We will now be speaking with Holly Jones, who is a researcher in the Healthy Housing Unit at the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health. Her research focuses on mold in housing, and she joins us to discuss um, the relationship between mold, housing and climate action. Good morning, Holly. Thank you for joining us today.
8: Morning, Malika. Thank you for having me.
5: No, really keen to talk to you more about your research. I guess just kicking off, could you tell us a bit more about the research you're doing and kind of what led to its development?
8: Yeah, sure. So I came here because I like public health, cities, people, communities, urban planning, and housing was a logical place for someone who likes both health and cities to go. Um, Mould was suggested by my supervisor, because there wasn't much research into it and they needed more research on housing conditions. Basically, the rationale for it is mould causes illness. We know that. Um, But we need more information. There's not actually much causal evidence. People need specifics on which parts of mould, which species are causing illness, what symptoms are related with what kinds of housing conditions. And that data just doesn't exist because mould is so hard to measure. Um, If we want people to be able to avoid illness and heal and get better we need to be able to measure mould in housing and that's where my research comes in I'm trying to measure how much mould there is specifically who's got it where are they what kind of houses are they in and how can we get rid of it and prevent it.
5: That is so fascinating that we actually aren't able to measure or that we don't have information and research on mould in this way because like I know mould is bad and I know mould in my house is bad but I didn't know we actually didn't have the stats to back it up. Um, We know that realistically rain and flooding causes mould and with increase in rain and flooding due to climate change what are the repercussions of inaction on climate change particularly at this intersection of mould and housing and well-being?
8: Thanks for asking that is so important. Um, So we know the climate is warming And when the air is warm, more water can uh, dissolve in the air and be held in it. Basically, you've been to warm climates where it's more humid. That's spreading to a wider place across the world. So those of us in Melbourne might have noticed that it's wetter. That is because of La Nina, which I think is exacerbated by climate change. And wetter weather in general is exacerbated by climate change. So not only do we have those huge events like flooding and storms, we also just have a general more humid climate, and that does mean more mould. When it's humid outside, it's harder to get your house dry. If it's wetter outside than it is inside, opening your windows isn't going to do much. Um, So I do think we need to work hard from a housing and a health perspective to take action on climate change so that we can maybe reach that goal of warm, dry housing. Honestly, the relationship between fossil fuels and human health has so many links, and this is just one small one, but I think it's a really important thing to think about, um, and a lot more housing researchers are starting to directly talk about climate and
5: housing. Um, No, thank you for, like, outlining that linkage and the different steps that kind of lead to this kind of issue. Um, As someone who, over the last three years has lived in a house that was extremely poorly insulated and there was no ventilation and it kind of struck a fire within me to be passionate about the difficulties of homes in Australia being poorly designed from that insulation and ventilation perspective. Could you speak to kind of the challenges of keeping homes warm and dry, especially in the winter months?
8: Yes. Um, i love to hear that you have a fire within you for preventing mold. (laughs) Me too. I've lived in some awful houses. Um, Yeah, the thing is, mold is always around. It's a part of our environment. It's many thousands of species of fungi, and, you know, they're normally our friends, the same way the good bacteria in our gut microbiome are our friends. The good fungi are part of our world, and we don't want to get rid of them. When it becomes a problem is when it's wet, which creates an environment for those fungi that might have more toxic effects to grow. Um, that's when you will see things like black mould growing. Um, and houses that aren't insulated or ventilated are hard to keep warm and dry. It's very expensive to keep your house warm if every time you turn the heater off it all just disappears through paper thin walls which is what I'm experiencing in my house right now. We're trying to think of ways to kind of DIY our way into a more insulated house. I remember someone on Twitter suggested bubble wrap on windows, and I'm honestly considering it because of the heat loss through the windows. Um, It's a challenge because we have really old housing stock in Australia and we don't have great minimum standards for renters. There's some, um, like there is a standard saying there shouldn't be mould in a rental household, but there's no minimum standard about, say, insulation. Um, which means that people like me can move into these, uh, glorified tents. They tend to call them in the housing community. Yeah. Um, and I also want to bring up the National Construction Code and the way it has the very noble goal of increasing thermal efficiency. That is keeping houses warmer, which is great. That's what, that's what I want. That's what I was just saying. Well insulated. Okay. But unfortunately, the code that has been in place over the last decade or so has prioritised warmth over ventilation, which Mm -hmm. means that a lot of new builds you'll find are very watertight and water vapour can't escape from them. That's an issue because we're breathing out all day, humans breathe out water vapour. If your house is too watertight, like in the brand new apartments we're seeing popping up all over Melbourne, Um, that water will just gather inside, condense on the windows, condense on the walls, condense in places you can't see, like the roof cavity or subfloor, and you'll end up with mould. And that can be hidden as well. I've heard some horror stories from people who, you know, their landlord will send in a builder who will pull up the carpet in a new build and find that it's soaked underneath because of the way the building is. And that building is built perfectly to code. So we're hoping to see the construction code change this year.
5: Yeah.
8: So that would need ventilation as well as heat.
5: So it sounds like there's so many layers to this. It's like the legislation, the codes, also knowing about our rights as renters as well, because I'm mm-hmm. sure myself included um, did not know that there was leg- like. I had some rights around this so it's also keeping ourselves informed and being able to access that information as well and so your research group is currently doing a survey with free mold measurement for up to a hundred Melbourne residents how can listeners sign up to this because this is a really great initiative
8: yes Um would love to have as many responses as possible we're only measuring the mold in a hundred houses because it's quite expensive and that's all we have the funding to afford um, listeners can sign up to the survey. It's around fifteen minutes um, at our website, which is healthyhousing-cre. CRE stands for Centre of Research Excellence, so that's healthyhousing-cre.org forward slash mould. Um, and that's that. mould spelt in the Australian way with a U.
5: Oh, I didn't know that there was different spellings. But that, thank you for clarifying that, and we'll definitely put that in the show notes and. Um, any final thoughts or comments on mould that you would like to share with our listeners today?
8: Hmm. Um, don't try and kill it with chemicals. That won't kill the mycelium and hyphae underneath. Best ways to physically remove it and keep your house warm and dry.
5: Thank you so much for joining us today, Holly. Um, who knew a conversation around mould could really centre around human rights, climate action and health and wellbeing? being <laughs>
8: Right? and such a surprise. Thanks for having me.
5: Thanks again. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM and we were joined by Holly Jones, who is a researcher in the Healthy Housing Unit at the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health. Her research focuses on mould in housing and she joined us to discuss their research into mould housing as well as the need for climate action to tackle this.
0: Yeah, it was really interesting and I think it's so... Um, vital to have researchers like Holly talking about mold as a housing justice issue, because I think, um, you know, housing conditions do get talked about a bit. But when you see researchers like Holly in this Center for Research Excellence, but also people like sweltering cities who are looking into issues around insulation, um, it's just so vital to, you know, have all of the data that they're collecting in our arsenal, I guess, to push for housing justice and, and the construction of safe homes for everyone. Um, So we're coming up to the end of time on today's show, but we might do a quick rundown of what we covered today. So, Inez, do you want to take it away with our first two?
1: Yes. uh, We were first joined by Janelle De Silva, who's a multidisciplinary artist, talking about their live podcast series, Race on the Table, with Dr. Nimani Fernando and Fionn Bastos. And they talk about artists and race and healing. And the last podcast recording will be on Saturday, 4th of June, between 2 to 3. And you can grab your tickets on Eventbrite, and it'll be at an indoor venue because it's raining At New Wave Two Seven Zero Sydney Road Brunswick, and then we were joined by Jimmy Grant, who is part of the band Big Farmer, and they spoke about making creative music with your pals, bringing joy to music. And their next show will be at Kitten Hill at B East on Friday. Oh, for free, sorry, on Saturday the 11th of June from 6 p.m. Excellent. And we'll
0: have those inf- uh, that information in our show notes. And after that, we were joined by Professor Nancy Baxter, who's the head of the Melbourne Pop- School of Population and Global Health, who joined us to speak about the need for a comprehensive public health strategy to deal with the spread of COVID-19 and influenza in the face of rising infection rates as we enter the colder months. And after, after that, we were joined by Anastasia Kangere, who's a rank and file candidate running for the position of General Secretary of the National Tertiary Education Union, and spoke with us today about the need to transfer Form the NTU to save jobs and rebuild the sector.
5: And lastly, we were joined by Holly Jones, who is a researcher in the Healthy Housing Unit at the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health. And her research focuses on mould in housing. And um, we will include this information in the show notes. But her research group is currently doing a survey with free mould measurements for up to 100 Melbourne residents.
0: Yeah, excellent. And before we wrap up for today, just want to add another plug for Radiothon on 3CR. It's going to be our special Radiothon program next week. So definitely tune in because we're going to be calling some of our favorite guests, replaying some interviews uh, from across the year that we've loved. And uh, if you donate, we'll play a little cash uh, money sound and uh, read your name out on air. So Looking forward to it. And if you want to donate in advance and uh, just guarantee yourself a shout out, you know, guarantee yourself a shout out so that you don't have to worry about being up um, fumbling with your phone during the show, you can go to GiveNow.com.au forward slash CR forward slash breakfast. And don't forget to nominate the Thursday breakfast show in your pledge, because we would hate for you to put in a donation, uh, be listening out for your shout out. And we wouldn't know that you'd uh, given something to Thursday Brekkie. So you can do that. But you can also call the station on nine. 4198377 to donate and head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate as well. Um, yeah, that's all we've got time for today. Thanks so much, guys. Uh, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure.
1: Thanks,
5: Priya.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Ines. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's
3: independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.